Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Rio. How's everybody doing this morning? I want to welcome you to Community Christian Church. So good to have you here. Today is installment number 11 in our current Summer on the Mount series. So 11 of 13, that means two more to go and we're done. Next week, this week, next week, and then the 28th. And just out of curiosity, how many of you have been here for all of them? Batting a thousand. That many? Are you kidding? Hold your hand up for just a second. Wow. I am super impressed. And I'm going to take a page out of God's book this morning and pass out a few rewards. So if you have been here for all the this series uh, lessons, I'm going to give you a gift card from Crumble Cookies uh, this morning. That's right. Um, what I'd like you to do is come and see me. I hope I have enough for everybody. I might have to get a few more. Uh, but first come, first serve today. You're gonna get, I'm going to buy you a crumble cookie. Unfortunately, you won't be able to use it today uh, because like Chick-fil-A, they're closed on Sundays. So uh, enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much for your uh, participation and your diligence. Uh, for others who are a little bit sharper than most, that was my subtle way of getting uh, a feel for your attendance here on Sunday morning. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, all summer long we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And as I mentioned earlier, this one sermon is the Christian manifesto. It's what separates Christianity from all the rest. And this particular sermon is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now we have a lot to cover this morning, so let's get started with today's verses. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. All right, I want you to remember that. Most of you know that. It's the ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son or your daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if she asks for a fish, will give her a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And now verse 12, the golden rule. So in everything, how much? So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. All right, uh, the King James Version and the New King James in this particular verse, the last verse we just read, verse 12, it uses the word therefore. So the King James Version reads, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And so literary scholars, what is the first rule of therefore? To discover or to find out what it's there for. And in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, the word therefore 
connects the golden rule with the preceding text. So here's my question for you. When we ask, seek, and knock, because that's what the preceding text is all about. Remember, I, I told you to keep that in mind? So when we're crying out to God, when we present to him our prayer request, and we're appealing before the throne uh, for answer prayer, you know, knocking on the door as hard as we can, is it possible that our actions and our attitudes toward others come into play? Like, could it be possible that our behavior and the way that we treat other people, the way that we act toward them, that it influences prayer requests? And before you strenuously object to that statement or insinuation, I want to rehearse a couple of other verses from the same Sermon on the Mount. We've covered these already. The first one is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus said, who said it? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what's the key to obtaining mercy? Showing mercy. Being merciful to others. All right? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Again, the key to getting forgiveness from the Lord for our daily indiscretions is to what? Forgive others. Be willing to let go of some offenses of the people around us. One more, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And Pastor Tyler handled these verses brilliantly last week, don't you think? Judge not that you be not judged, for the same judgment or measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Can you see that even in light of God's mercy and his amazing grace and unconditional love, still we are held accountable for our own actions? Could it be, and I'm just throwing this out there, I mean, come on, it's week 11, I'm running out of time. Could it be that sometimes we hinder our own prayers? And that the way we treat other people, the way that we behave, that's the way that God deals with us? One more exhibit and then we'll move on. 1 Peter 3, 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are. And check this out. She may be stronger than you are. Strong enough to knock you around. But either way, she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. So husbands, treat your wife the way that she should be treated so that your prayers are not hindered. And wives, treat your husband the exact same way. I rest my case. All right, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. All right, how many of you have driven south on I-75 through the downtown Atlanta, Georgia area? If you have done that, then you already know that is an absolute living nightmare. 
for 7.4 miles, just ahead of the 17th Street Bridge, I-75 and I-85 combine for a whopping 16 lanes of traffic, making it the widest roadway anywhere in the U.S. interstate highway system. Whenever I'm driving, or Teresa and I are driving down to Florida, and we get on the other side of Atlanta, Georgia, I mean on the south side, I'm done behind the wheel for that day. About the time we pull into Macon, Georgia, I can't do another mile. Not at this age. I mean, I am stressed out to the max driving through Atlanta. And according to the Department of Transportation, that stretch of highway that I just described to you, it services, get this now, 2 million vehicles a day. A lot of those are semis, too. That is an enormous, outrageous, crazy amount of traffic. And how many of you know 16 expressway lanes of traffic side by side is a very spacious area? All right, back to our verses. I don't know what imagery comes to mind when you read the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and wide is the road that leads to destruction. I remember when I was a young boy listening to the priests talk about this particular passage. It scared the life out of me. Because in my mind, I envisioned two roads parallel to each other, two roads side by side. And the first road was very narrow. It was restricted. It was winding. Uh, there was a lot of trouble on that road. There was rocks. There was holes in the ground. And everybody on that road, they were not having a good time at all. They were sad. Uh, they were unhappy. And you get to the end of this miserable narrow road, and there's Jesus welcoming everybody with open arms. And then just a few feet away, there's this second road. It's broad, it's wide, it's colorful. There's a lot of people on this road. They're singing, they're dancing, everybody's happy. They're enjoying the pleasures of life. And then you get to the end of that road, and you see smoke and fire and a laughing devil. Thankfully, that imagery has changed. And now when I read these verses... And when I spend a little time thinking about them, what I do is I focus in on the narrow gate. My mind is drawn to the narrow gate because I firmly believe that what Jesus was trying to communicate to us, what Jesus was saying here, is once you choose the narrow gate, once you walk through the narrow gate, immediately you, you arrive at your place of destination. And that place of destination, spiritually speaking, is the blessed life here on earth and it's eternal life in the reality to come. So Jesus was talking to us about getting on the other side of this narrow gate and immediately being where we want to go. And this is the image that I feel that the people living in Jesus' day would have understood because this is the way that gates and roads leading into the cities were designed. And I have a picture that I want to show you. You see, this was a typical gate or a typical city. And the way that the city was designed was with this wall around the city. This huge wall went around the city. 
it offered protection, it offered safety and security, and this wall was guarded. There was a guard on this wall. And then in order to get into the city, there was one little gate right here. And once you were able to get into the gate, once you passed through the gate, you were in the city. You were in your place of destination. So once you went past the gate, there wasn't this long and winding road and all kinds of trouble and all kinds of adversity. You were in the gate. You were in the city. You went through the gate, you were in the city. And when I think about this now, because oftentimes when we read this passage, we get a little freaked out. We start thinking about heaven and hell and all of the people. And what comes to mind, again, when I focus in on the narrow gate, are two additional verses of scripture in the Bible. These are scriptures that you know very well. The first one is found in John chapter 10 and verse 9, where Jesus plainly said, I am the gate. Okay, this is the language that Jesus has used. This is the picture and the image that he wants us to see. He said, I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The next verse that comes to mind is John 14, 6. This is Jesus speaking again. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. How many of you know this is the gospel message we preach? And as ministers of the gospel, we don't have the luxury, the license, or the liberty to modify the message. As much as people get upset with these verses because they're exclusionary, this is the story of salvation. It's a life-changing story. And Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places in the gospel that I am the way. That's about as narrow as you can get. The way is through Christ. Now, in this dark and upside down world in which we live in, uh, the world that would balk at these verses that we just looked at, do you think the people of the world ever think about eternity? Do you, do you think they consider eternity? Is it on their radar? Is, is it something that they focus in on? Well, while you think about that for just a moment, let me reference a USA Today newspaper article that I read some time ago. This was a front page USA Today snapshots column that featured lifestyles of affluent American people, people just like you and me. And this group of people who took this survey, they were given seven items, seven possessions, seven giftings, seven sought-after items, and they were asked to rate these items in order of importance and value. And if you even care, let me give you the results. All right? Least on the priority list, number seven out of seven was outstanding physical beauty. According to this group, it would appear that drop-dead gorgeous is overrated. Okay? Coming in at number six was reconciliation or being reunited with an estranged relative or a family member. So uh, not a huge interest here. Number five on the I need to have it list was finding a modern-day fountain of youth. Now, I would have thought that this one would have rated a little higher, but maybe that's just me. 
my vanity. All right, number four was possessing ex extraordinary athletic or musical talent. So being deemed the best of the best was right there in the middle at number four. The next item on the dream list at number three was intelligence, being a genius or the smartest person in the room. And I guess that distinction is important to some people. Then runner-up on the list at number two was finding true love. Genuine love that would last and remain for a lifetime. And I, I found this one to be pretty interesting. But more than all the rest, what absolutely blew me away was the number one rating. And now we're talking about the item at the top of the list, the one with the highest value, uh, that one possession that people said they would be willing to pay the most for. Are you ready for it? Eternal salvation or securing a place in heaven. Can you believe that? See, that tells me and it confirms to me that even if people aren't talking about it, even if they don't want to admit it, this whole idea of eternity and salvation, it is continually on our minds. And that's precisely what King Solomon learned. You talk about the smartest guy in the room. That was King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, Solomon said, God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has set eternity in our hearts. This whole matter of eternity, being right with God, wanting to make sure that we secure a place in heaven, it's up here because the Spirit of the Lord put it here. This is God's doing. God has put this question and this whole idea in our minds. And when push comes to shove, regarding all of the luxuries in the world that we think we have to have, fame and fortune and popularity and prestige and beauty and being the best, they can't even begin to compare with the peace that we get when we have secured this whole idea of eternity. Nothing else compares with it. It all fall, falls short. And here's the kicker. You don't have to have a, a lot of money to get there. You don't even have to have a dime to possess this eternity that I'm talking about today. Because the scripture says that God offers it to us free of charge. And with God, and only with God, free means free. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift. It is a free gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a free gift. It comes with no monetary strings attached whatsoever. You don't have to pay for it. And people with a lot of money here in America, we just pay for what we want. If we want something, we go and get it. But the Bible tells us that this whole idea of eternity and securing salvation, it's a gift from God. We don't have to shell out money. We do, however, have to exercise a little bit of faith. That's what the scripture tells us. 
Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's how you secure salvation. It's with a profession of faith. And this little bit of faith that I'm talking about has to get you to the place where you acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. That's what it says. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Not just Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people today that they know Jesus, uh, they recognize him, they believe in him. Uh, they would say he was a good man or a good teacher, maybe even went to the cross. Some people even believe that. But the kind of commitment that I'm talking to you about today has to take you to the next level where you acknowledge his lordship in your life, where what Jesus did on the cross for you means enough to you that you would be willing to surrender to him. And friend, when you do that, when you're willing to make that choice, you walk through the narrow gate. And on the other side of that gate, not only does the scripture promise us eternal life when this reality is over, but it also tells us that we can be a recipient of the gift that God gives to us, a gift called grace. In God's grace, the unmerited favor, the best that he has to offer, that is available to everyone. Did you hear me? God's grace to get us to the place of salvation is available for everyone. Amen. Not just your mom or dad, not just your neighbor, not just the pastor or, or you know, the people that respond to the, to, the, to the serve board and volunteer you know, in the lobby welcoming the guests as they come in. Not just those people. God's grace is sufficient for all of us. It's available for all of us. And in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, it was Peter who said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. We do sometimes, but God doesn't. God is no respecter of persons, the Bible says. He treats everyone the same. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. How I many know oh, God wants you saved? He'll wait a lifetime for it. He wants you to serve him with full devotion. And you don't have to get to that place all by yourself. God's grace is available to you. God's unmerited favor, his willingness to empower you is available to you to get you to the place that you need to be. Now, in the time remaining this morning, what I want to do is I want to prove to you that God has always been a God of grace. I hear stories, you know, that God was, you know, a God of judgment in the Old Testament. God was a God of grace, you know, revealed through Jesus. God has always been a God of grace. The scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. Now, there's some tough stories in the Old Testament that you've got to get around and understand, but God has not changed. God's grace is efficient for all of us. And I, I want to bring this idea of God's grace out in, uh, through one of the stories in the Old Testament. This particular story is found all the way back in the book of Genesis. 
And please remember with me that the nation of Israel was birthed out of 12 different tribes. Do you remember that? These 12 tribes came from the 12 sons of Jacob. So Jacob had 12 sons. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And these 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Jacob. So there's a real man assigned to each of the tribes. Let me just give you the 12 sons that then became the 12 tribes. You ready? All right, there was Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, Judah, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, Asher, and Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Again, real men, the sons of Jacob, they formulated the nation of Israel. Now, can anybody tell me, do you remember what tribe Jesus came from? Anyone? He came from the tribe of Judah. That was the bloodline that carried Jesus. And it appears, when you look at the scripture, as though Judah, you know, the, the, the guy who was over the tribe of Judah, the, the man Judah, the son, that he was a godly person. I mean, so special, better than all the other 11 boys, that God would bestow upon him such a great privilege of carrying the lineage of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what this meant for that one tribe? First King David, and then Jesus, the Son of God. And here's the specific prophecy given to Judah in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. This is what tells us that this tribe was going to be very special. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it, the scepter, belongs. Do you understand that passage? Who is the ruler or the king or the Messiah that this verse is talking about? It's Jesus. And this prophetic word given in Genesis happened about 1,800 years before the birth of Christ. And again, it was a tremendous blessing for Judah and his tribe. And so when I'm going through the scripture and I read a passage like that, and I see that God favored one guy out of 12, I'm asking myself, why? What was so special about this guy Judah? What did he do to gain such favor? Monumental favor from God. Why did God endorse him? I mean, why was he so special? Well, let's check it out. When Judah was just a young man, the scripture tells us that he fell in love with a beautiful little girl by the name of Bathsheba. Not Bathsheba, it's a different story. Judah and Bathsheba, they came together, they got married, and they had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Those were their three sons. Now, the first son, uh, heir, as, long, as soon as he was old enough to marry, he found a, a girl as well, and he married her. Her name was Tamar. Unfortunately for heir, things didn't go well for him, and he died suddenly just a couple of months, maybe even a couple years after he was married. So following the funeral... Judah took his second son, Onan, aside, and he said, it's our custom to provide for your brother's wife. And so Onan, he married Tamar. So now Tamar was married to Er, the first son. Then she's married now to Onan, the second son. And of all the rotten lightning strikes in the exact same place, and not too long after that marriage, Onan dies. And so 
after this happens, you're just thinking like, my daughter-in-law's bad luck. <laughs> There's no way in the world I'm giving her to my third son, Sheila. So he didn't provide for her, which forced her to go to her father-in-law and appeal to him and say, look, I'm a widow. Nobody's going to marry me. I'm, I'm homeless. I don't have any money. I'm on the brink of poverty. What are you going to do for me? How are you going to provide for me? And that's when Judah, he uh, confirmed and said to Tamar, I'm going to take care of it. I'll, I'll, I'll handle it. But he had two fingers crossed behind his back. And there was absolutely no way in the world that he was going to give this woman to his third son. And then for survival's sake, that forced Tamar to take matters into her own hands. Judah was supposed to provide for her. That was the law. That was their custom. He didn't do it. He said, no way am I giving you to my third son. So Tamar had to do something about it. And this is where the story gets real creepy. And so I'm going to move through this story quickly on purpose. If you're interested and you want to know the details of it, you can find it in Genesis chapter 38, but not this morning. I do it later on after church. Just a few years after Judah's second son, Onan, died, believe it or not, his wife died. So that was a lot of death for Judah. His firstborn son, his secondborn son, and then his third, third son. So he was, uh, then his wife. Firstborn son, secondborn son, then his wife. And so feeling a little bit depressed, he goes into town with a buddy at sheep shearing time. And now all the sheep owners and all the people associated with this event, what they did is they came together and it was a week-long celebration and party. Everybody came together, they sheared the sheep, they made wool, they drank wine. And so it was during this time that Tamar did a little investigative work and she found out where Judah would be spending the night. She located his tent. And so following a day of wine drinking, Judah's trying to make his way back to his house, and that's when he sees this woman. She's dressed like a prostitute. She's covered her face. And Judah propositioned her and invited her into his tent, and he slept with her. Did not know, did not understand it was his daughter-in-law. Yes, this is in the Bible. Uh, to make matters worse, Tamar gets pregnant. Again, Judah didn't know what was going on here. So a couple of months later, when Tamar began to show, the gossipers went to work, and the story began to spread in that wonderful little religious town. And when Judah found out about it, when he found out that his daughter-in-law was unlawfully pregnant, he went ballistic. And he gave the order for her to be burned to death. Judah gave the order for his daughter-in-law and her baby to be burned. And the scripture says they dragged her out to the place of execution. But Tamar, she had gathered some incriminating evidence against her father-in-law. And she proved to him before she was executed that he was the father. And so humiliated, as you could possibly imagine, as shamed as he could be, he announces to the entire village what had happened. And he said, Tamar 
is more righteous than me. And she's more righteous than me because I didn't do what I was supposed to do, and it led to some really bad things. And if you can believe this, Tamar, she gives birth to twin boys, uh, Perez and Zerah, and Perez carries the line of Christ. Can you believe this wonderful, grace-filled God that we serve? And so let's back up here just a little bit. And let me repeat the same question that I presented to you a few moments ago. When we read uh, that prophetic word that came over Judah, and when we see that a tremendous blessing was bestowed upon him, remember I asked, what was it that he did so special? Why did he gain such favor from God? Why was he the one who carried the line of Christ? Why? Can I answer that in a question? What Judah did that was so special? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Any blessing that Judah or anyone else received was just God being God. Doing the things that God does. Weaving his favor his mercy and his provision into our lives even when we don't deserve it. Do you remember what that's called? That's grace with a capital G. G-R-A-C-E. Instead of judgment for his sin, instead of punishment or discipline for his immorality in all the things that he did wrong, what did God do? He poured out unmerited favor on Judah and on his tribe because that's the heart of God. It's the way he treats us. It's the way he deals with all of us. You know, sometimes we forget how God dealt with us. We want the hammer to fall on somebody else, but we forget how merciful he was to us. Amen. Psalm 103, verse 10 says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. I'm going to say that again. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions. You see, this story I'm telling you, it's the greatest story you'll ever hear, the gospel story. And that's why early on in his ministry, Jesus stood before the multitudes, he stood before the people, and he said to them, the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent, repent, and believe the good news. Amen. Repent and believe the good news. And I just told it to you. Amen. The good news of salvation. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Holy Spirit, through the entire worship service, we are crying out to you to come and have your way. We thank you for all the prayers that have been prayed this week. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace in each of our lives, for drawing us to this place, Lord, where we could hear the message of life. Whether here, at home, or in the future when people are listening to this podcast or watching this video, it's because of your grace. You weaving your favor and your blessing 
and your provision into our lives, that you draw us to that place of making a decision. And this passage that we share today, our verses for today, it highlighted the narrow gate because it is for your desire that all of us pass through it. I know it says that few would find it, but Lord, your desire is for all of us to go through it. And I pray, Lord God, in these closing moments that you would speak to each of our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, living God, have your way in our lives. That was our prayer. We pray it again in the name of Jesus. Amen.